we have two boys, and we have uh, an older daughter and then uh, a younger daughter that's going to be born. Well, the two boys, they just don't like clothes. It's the strangest thing. It's, it's gotten to the point where one of our children will use the restroom and then hide his clothing in the bathroom under the vanity and come out and act like he lost them. And you're like, what is going on, man? I mean, we know the clothes are in there. It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous thing. But for the most part, we as a culture, we have an obsession with fashion, with clothing, ultimately with our appearance. Did you know that Americans consume nearly 20 billion new garments per year? So there's 320 million people in America or so. So that makes about 68 garments and seven pairs of shoes per year. And on average, every American, including every man, woman, and child in the United States, will spend over $1,000 on clothing in the year 2015. There's also, you know, I find it interesting, too, that there are entire TV shows about wedding dresses. Did you know that that existed? That, that thing exists. There's an entire TV show about a wedding dress, about finding the right dress. This is why our daughter Tatum recently asked Megan if she could wear her wedding dress when she gets married. And we said, hey, you're not allowed to think about that right now. You're way too young for that. So what is fashion? What, what is that all about? Well, fashion is dressing up our dying bodies with newness. That's why we like to do that. We like to make ourselves look new and fresh and clean. All the while, ever since the day we've born, we've, we're spending the rest, the next 70 to 80 years dying. That's what's happening. So, so why do we do this? Because we have a desire to look the part. Uh, we, we, want to, we want people to think well of us. We want to take care of our bodies. And a lot of times we can just think, if I just look the part, then maybe I can play the part. If I just fake it, maybe I'll eventually make it. I can even remember like interviewing at Perimeter Church to be a church planter. I came out of the youth ministry world, so my wardrobe was cargo shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops. I mean, that's what I wore year around. I can remember thinking, man, i got to go get some new clothes if I'm going to be like a, like a church planner and a lead pastor. i got to look a little different than the youth pastor. And so I can remember just going out and thinking, hey, I took one of my buddies that's in business, and I said, hey, man, can you help me kind of look business casual, right? Because I don't really know what that means. Can you help me with that? And it's just interesting. But the thing I've recognized about God in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 this week is this. God is interested in clothing us in a different way than we clothe ourselves. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God tells Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. And the following is the account of what happens. I want to read this quickly for us to kind of set us up today. Uh, it's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 13. When they came... He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord, this is key, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. See, what was Jesse's issue in this text? Jesse's issue was he was ashamed to bring out David because he didn't look the part. He wasn't clothed. He didn't have the appearance. He wasn't huge in stature. He didn't look like the next king of Israel. He was the son that didn't look the part, so he was left out tending the sheep. God's interested in dressing us up on the inside. That's what he's interested in. And that's what God did with David. Making us new through his spirit. So where does this all start? Where did this journey to make ourselves into something that we can never be, where did this journey start? Well, if you remember in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, there's this immediate need to be covered. Adam and Eve are like, they know that they're naked all of a sudden. So what do they do? They begin to string up a few fig leaves, right? And they're kind of making a robe, making a garment out of the fig leaves. And God says, what are you guys doing? You're trying to cover yourselves up, but I can see straight through you. And so then what does God do? He goes and he slays an animal. He provides a sacrifice. And he clothes them with the sacrifice that he has provided. Well, if you, flat, if you, if you fast forward to when Jesus comes, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. This is, this is exactly what God provides for us to be clothed in a sacrifice that God provides. A perfect sacrifice. A blood offering of perfect blood. And we now are clothed in God's righteousness. That's what it means to be a Christian. And as we'll discover today, the only garment uh, that will meet our need is to be clothed with the righteousness that comes from Christ. So here's the big idea of where we're going today. We're kind of everything kind of points toward today. Uh, putting on the new self starts with taking off the old self. Uh, so, uh, number one, as we get in, we need to talk about taking off the old self. And this is uh, found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. So if you've got a Bible, turn that open, crack that bad boy open, and, uh, and let's read Ephesians 4 uh, here in just a moment. As you're turning there, uh, uh, I have a question for you. Have you ever been in a situation where you're not dressed for the occasion? Have you ever caught yourself in a moment where you're like, I don't know if I'm looking the part today? Like, for instance, whenever I was in high school, one of the, I told you guys I've had 27 jobs. One of the 27 jobs that I had was I worked at Arby's. Now, in the little town that I grew up in, Arby's, I mean, that was like a, that was kind of like a, that was a white-collar kind of job, right? I mean, it was, for a high school student, that was a significant job. So I remember going into Arby's in nearly a three-piece suit to interview. I mean, like, I, like, I was all decked out for this interview to work at Arby's. I was not dressed for the part because I would wear non-slip black shoes and black pants to hide all the grease that gets all over your body when you're working at Arby's, right? Or how about the time that I went to a funeral, uh, as a youth pastor with, with sh- like shorts and flip-flops on. That wasn't the appropriate attire either. Have you ever been in a situation where you're not dressed as you should be? Paul is saying that these Ephesian Gentiles, that, that, that their old way of living is no longer compatible with their new life in Christ. 
because they're former pagans and they're not dressed for life in Christ. They're, there's a temptation to continue to be about the way uh, of your old life, even though you've been given new life in Christ. And so that's kind of the, that's where he sets us up and, and teases us off here. So we're going to read Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 now. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, if that's not a harsh description of what a sinful life looks like, I don't know what is. That is pretty staggering, the things that he shares there. As I read this, you know, I, I expected Paul to do something different here than he did. I expected Paul to say, hey, you know, you guys have been gambling in the temple. We've got to cut that out. You guys are Christians now. You've got to stop that kind of stuff. You know, I expected him to go after the, their behaviors that didn't look the part. But if you notice that, I mean, he barely talks about behavior at all. And that's when he's talking about, you know, sensuality, greedy, that kind of stuff. He barely talks about those uh, behaviors. He spends the most of his time talking about how sin affects your mind and your heart. I think that's very significant. He doesn't go after the behavior, but he goes after the mind, our thought life, and our hearts. He says, uh, you know, he talks about the futility of the mind, the darkened understanding, the alienated ignorance, the hardness of heart. I don't know about you, when I think about my sin, I think a lot more about my actions than my thoughts. I think Paul's saying we might want to rethink how we think about sin. Living as a Christian is not how, about how things look on the outside, but it's about what we've chosen to embrace as truth on the inside. Because whatever we've chosen to embrace as truth in our minds comes out through our actions. That's inevitable. That always happens. I was reading, last night I was reading uh, this guy named Dallas Willard. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but he wrote this fantastic book. If you're a reader, pick this thing up. It's called Renovation of the Heart. Great book. I'm going to read just a little excerpt. It won't be on the screen because I just read it last night, but it's really good. So listen to this. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. There, the light of God first begins to move upon us through the word of Christ. And there, the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, begins to direct our will to more and more thoughts that can provide the basis for choosing to realign ourselves with God. So he's saying if you get in the Word, your will will follow what the Word of God is teaching. The Holy Spirit will make that happen so that we're able to realign ourselves with God. But apart from our mind changing and our thought life changing, our actions will never change. Our lives will actually never really change. He says this, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell upon. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. It's about our minds. It's about our thoughts. It's about where our mind goes. Genuine outward change always follows inward transformation in our thought life. And this is why, friends, we must be concerned with the sin in our thought life. If we're going to ignore that and just say, hey, I'm doing all the things I should be doing, 
then you're never going to find the joy of following Christ with your whole life. We must address what's going on in our minds. This is why Jesus, uh, we don't like to read about what, when Jesus talks about the law. Because he's not like, hey, let's just get rid of the law. He's like, actually, you know, you guys have been interpreting the law wrong all along. Because here's what the law is actually about. Jesus says if we hate someone, it's like we've killed them. So in the Old Testament law, you know, you're tempted to interpret and think, okay, well, I've never killed anyone. I mean, I've got a gun, but I've never used it on anyone, you know. I've never killed anyone. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're thinking about it all wrong. If you hated someone, then it's like you've killed them. He doesn't stop there. He says, and if we lust, it's like we've had an affair. We've committed adultery. It's really interesting that Jesus goes after our thoughts. If we continue to, to think as if we're not a new creation in Christ, we will continue to act that very same way. Because everything that our actions produce, our hands produce, the things that we walk in, are first embraced in the mind, and then conceived in the heart as truth, and then lived out in our lives. It's really interesting what happens uh, in that. So we really, what, what, what's going on here is we really act on what we believe to be true. So if I believe that some sinful action will give me what I really need, I will act on that. Because I think it's true. I think that God's holding out for me. That he's not giving me what I really need. And so I, I lie to make a situation better. Or I, I lust or whatever I would do. It's because I'm not, that is truth to me. But when we, this is why the first step is embracing what is really truth. Which is this passage actually talks about the truth is in Jesus. And this word, it tells us about Jesus. So this is where it all starts here. This is why as a Christian... We've got to be in the Word of God, because if not, our lives can never change. So what's this walk into the darkness look like? Paul has some thoughts about what this embrace of the old self looks like. You know, I got, about seven years ago, I'm, an, I'm a pretty avid hunter. I like to go out into the woods and, uh, you know, capture little animals and, uh, it's, it's, it's part of what I like to do. It's part of what my dad taught me to do growing up, and I've just kind of continued to embrace it. I love to get into the woods and go hunting. About seven years ago, uh, I was hunting, and I got lost in the woods. Now, let me, let, me, let me set this up for you. So my stand that was back in the woods, I, I, had, I, had, I had thought ahead. I had put these little reflectors on trees all the way back to my stand. And I had been to this particular stand so many times that I get into the woods on this particular morning, and I think, I don't really need to use my flash because it's dark outside. I don't need to use my flashlight to get back in the woods. I know where I'm going. I don't need those indicators to tell me where I'm going. So I just start kind of, I can kind of see the shadows of trees because there's a full moon. And I start and I start walking and I'm walking for like 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, okay, something's wrong here. And so, uh, you know, I begin to get on my walkie-talkie with my buddy that's out there. I'm like, ah, Ralph, you there? He's like, yeah. You know, so we're, we're kind of bantering back and forth, and I'm like, hey, can you help me find my tree stand? I have no idea where it's at. And so Ralph goes uh, to get his, he has this huge spotlight, and he begins to shine it to see if I can see the spotlight. Can't see the spotlight. I'm pretty lost. So then things are really getting out of hand, because I'm like, hey, can you tell me, you know, some landmarks that I should look for to find my way back? And he's like, well, there's a bunch of trees. I'm like, oh, thanks, you know. We're, I'm in the woods, right? I'm lost in the woods, a bunch of trees. But then he says, okay, well, I'm going I'm to, he has this air horn. He's like, hey, I'm going to blow the air horn a couple times and see if you can hear it. Well, I'm hunting. 
Blowing an air horn is not the way to get deer to come to your deer stand. So he starts blowing the horn, and I can't hear it. And so I get up on top of a hill, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, all right, hit it one more time, and I can hear this little faint noise. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I am really lost. And so for the next half hour, as the sun is rising, he's blowing an air horn at his truck, and I'm trying to find my way back. Now, the significance about this example is this. I thought I knew the way, and I subtly got lost. I didn't get lost all of a sudden. There was a while where I knew where I was going, but I made a wrong turn somewhere, and I began to subtly get lost. And I think this is exactly what the walk, the drift in, back into darkness looks like. You think it's a jump off the deep end, but it's really a drift. And it starts in our mind, and it moves down into our hearts. We believe it is truth. And then it manifests itself, the dark life, in our actions. You know, another thing I've realized is this, is that it almost, this, this walk into darkness, this futility of your minds, this hardened heart, it almost always begins with self-dependence. What do I mean by self-dependence? Well, you kind of get into the situation where you're like, hey, I got this. I don't need the flashlight. I know where I'm going. I've done this a hundred times. I got this. God, I don't need your help. And so it kind of starts with making those types of sentiments. So we lose our, our desire to, we, we lose our neediness of God. That's what the, the drift into darkness begins to look like. We, we begin to say, I don't really need this. I got this on my own for this day, this week, this month. I got this on my own. And then it quickly is followed with the diminishment of our sin. So all of a sudden, we'll begin to not be able to see our sin anymore. And then we begin to think that we're actually our own Savior. It's this drift into darkness that starts in our mind. John Stott puts it like this. He says, dwelling in the darkness means we lose all sensitivity and then we lose all self-control. And that's what Paul is saying here. So let me set this up as we're going to look at these four layers of what walking into darkness looks like. Uh, Paul's reminding these Gentile Christian uh, that, that were formerly pagans, he's reminding them of what their life used to look like. That's why he's writing them. He's, he wants to encourage them that that's no longer their life anymore, but he also wants to warn them. And I think sometimes we can, we can read scriptures that are really a warning, and, and we don't take them as a warning. And this morning, I think you and I need to take this scripture as a warning. This is what it looks like to walk back into darkness. We need to stay away. We need to heed the word of the Lord. And so he's giving them, he's reminding them, but he's also giving them a warning. So these four layers of walking into darkness look like this. Looks like hardness, hardness of heart, uh, darkness, deadness, and then recklessness. That's what it looks like uh, to live in that. So hardness, number one. What happens to a heart that is estranged from God? That begins to say, I don't need God. What begins to become hard toward the truth that God gives us. The darkness, deadness, and recklessness all begin with a sudden, sudden hardening of the heart. A subtle hardening of the heart, rather. So I was thinking about this this week. What is hardness? How can I illustrate this? What does this actually look like? I don't know if you guys have ever seen a piece of petrified wood before. Anybody ever seen a piece of petrified wood? It's a, it's a fascinating thing. I want to tell you what it is. And I think it, I think it uh, gives us a good uh, illustration of what it looks like to have a hard heart. Well, a piece of petrified wood is a piece of wood that looks like a piece of wood, but it's actually a stone. 
So how does that process happen? Well, the petrification process occurs underground. When wood becomes buried under sediment, and it's initially preserved due to a lack of oxygen, which would inhibit its decomposition. So the wood is removed from its natural environment of growth, and, and very, it's very similar to how sin uh, has entered into the world. We've become estranged from God. We've been taken out of our natural environment of growth, which is to be completely one with God, uh, to have His complete righteousness clothing us, to find no shame in our own lives. So we've been removed from that. We were created to grow in that. We've been removed from that. And uh, we've been displaced. So that's the first thing that happens in the petrification process too. And here's where it really gets kind of crazy. So this, this mineral-laden water, this water that's carrying minerals, begins to flow through the sediment. And as it flows through the sediment, it begins to deposit these minerals of, of rock into, into the plant or the tree. And, and as the cells of the tree are dying, it's being replaced with this hardness, this rock. And it begins to, even though it looks like a tree, it's actually, its composition is made up as a rock. A stone forms in its place. And so what happens, that plant or tree begins receiving minerals from a source other than it was intended to. This is exactly what happens when our hearts begin to get hard. We were created to grow by the truth that comes from the Word of God. And we begin to feed on things that are lies. We begin to feed on things that come from the world, not from the Word of God. And as we begin to feed on the lies of the world, what happens is, is our genetic makeup in Christ actually begins to decompose. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this walk into darkness, we begin to embrace the lies and we need to be brought back into the light and out of the darkness. So our hearts begin to become hard toward what is actually intended to give us life. Here's how I would define hardness of heart. It's an inability and an unwillingness to respond to God's truth. And it all starts with this subtle shift of stiff-arming God. So this is what's going on in every unbelieving heart, or even in the unbelieving areas of our own hearts, right? Because we all have areas in our lives where we, we don't embrace the Word of God fully. We're a work in progress. There are areas of our hearts that are kind of stony, and they reject the truth of God. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel prophesies that hearts of stone will be turned to hearts of flesh. Because that's what has to happen for someone to receive the Word of God. The hardness has to be melted away. And that only happens through Jesus coming in and redeeming us and giving us his Holy Spirit. So then, hardness leads to darkness. Uh, this could be described as spiritual blindness. Uh, a person becomes blind toward God and they can no longer see. I find it interesting that when Jesus healed blind people, or when he healed anyone... Uh, we always think about the physical miracle that occurred. We rarely talk about the spiritual miracle that was actually more miraculous that occurred in every single one of those situations. And that's that the dead were brought to life. The, bl the, the blind man that was healed in John 9, the, the spiritual scales of his eyes fell off and he could see the Lord for who he was. That's the real miracle. I mean, the, the physical sight, that's a great thing. But the spiritual sight of seeing the Lord and following the Lord... That's the true miracle. And to think, if you're a Christian in this room, God has done that inside of you. 
And how many times do we just kind of sidestep that and say, oh, God really hasn't done a work in me. God has done a miracle in you if you're following Christ. Because you had a hard heart. You had a dead heart. And God brought it to life. I think deadness, the darkness, is it's really a suppression of truth. So it's, it's, uh, it's when we, we ignore and kind of stiff arm that truth. What happens is, is we become less capable of, of discerning what the truth actually is. So we kind of walk more and more into the woods, into the darkness. And we're, we're not able to discern what's actually truth and what's not truth anymore because we've, our hearts have become hardened toward God's truth. So he says that, you know, there's the, there's the hardness, there's the darkness, then there's the deadness. So in Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that these pagans are alienated from the life of God. So this severed reality, you know what this does? It makes any sin that could be committed, it makes it possible for all of us. Have you ever been in a place where someone has kind of blown it big time and you've thought to yourself, wow, I can't believe they did that. I could never do that. I mean, we've all thought that in our hearts if we're honest, haven't we? We've seen someone that's blown it big time and we thought, wow, they really need God's grace. See, the thing is, is that you realize as a Christian that you're not above any sin. That you are capable of the worst things that you could imagine. Because that's how bad sin is. If it's not for God's restraining grace keeping us from doing those things, we would all be murdering people. We would all be killing people. But it's God's grace that keeps us from doing that. Isaiah 64 uh, says this, we have, we have all become like one who is unclean. So we're all cut from the same cloth. Like it or not, you and I cut from the same cloth. And all our righteous deeds that we try to produce, the ESV says they're like a polluted garment. The NIV says they're like a filthy rag. And the Greek, you don't want to know what the Greek says, because it's bad. We, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So this is what happens as we're born into the world. We're swept away by sin. So this... This, this hardness, this darkness, this deadness ultimately leads to a reckless life. That's what Ephesians 4.19 says. It says they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, to what feels good. We're just going to do what feels good. We're going to pursue pleasure at all costs. Uh, greedy to every practice, every kind of impurity. Unfortunately, for you and I, for most of us, sin has to get to this point in its establishment in our hearts for us to consider it sin. If it doesn't get there, we're like, oh, I'm good. But Paul starts way before this in talking about the power of sin. He starts in the thought life. Oh, you start to get hard. You start to reject God's word. The reckless life is ultimately described as a, as a lack of restraint. Um, against sin. And, and Romans 1, talk, if you want to read about, kind of, if you want to go deeper into what the walk into darkness looks like, read Romans 1 through 3. Romans 1 through 3, there's a point, 1 19 through 3, rather. Uh, there's a point where the, Paul, the writer here, says that God gave them up to their desires. Oh, man. I don't, know, I don't ever want to be given up to my desires. I know how bad I am. I don't want to be given up to my desires. The thing we've got to remember is this, is there's no one good. I hear all the, all the time the biggest, um, the, like the biggest kind of 
thing that gets people hung up about Christians, one of them is, uh, how can a good God send good people to hell? And the thing that we've got to realize is there's no good people. That's, we're starting from the wrong place. There's no good people. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves to hell. That's what happens through this pursuit of darkness, this walk into the darkness. It's only but God's grace that any of us walk with him, that any of us pursue him, that any of us love him, that, that any of us want to, to, to be filled with the truth that comes from the word of God. The enemy's first pursuit of a person is through corrupting their mind and their thoughts. The more aware that you and I can become aware of this old man that lives inside of us to put off, the better we are. And so as Christians, we should be thinking about our sin even more than before we became Christians. Not, not to condemn us, but to see the hardness being melted away as we acknowledge our sin and seek for God to bring renewal to that part of our mind so that we can follow Jesus uh, in a better way. So, you know, this is where sin leaves us. It's pretty depressing. If I were to leave us right here today, we'd all kind of walk out and be like, oh, that was a pretty heavy sermon. This is where sin leaves us. Sin leaves us in a reckless position, out of control position. But this is not where Jesus leaves any of us. In fact, have you noticed how one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control? It's one of the works of the Holy Spirit in you to, to be able to control yourself against sin through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. But here's the thing. As we get into the second point here, I need you to remember that this does not happen overnight. Because if you're anything like me, uh, I get frustrated because I keep committing the same sins over and over and over again. And so what I begin to do is I begin to beat myself up. Ryan, you know better than this. Why are you still doing this? You're such a sinner. God doesn't love you. Look, his grace is not on you anymore. I begin to tell myself all these lies. But you, I, and, and I'm reminded when I get into that place that I spent 20-something years following the course of the world, letting the world shape me. It takes time for the hardness to melt away. And that's what, that's what really the Bible calls sanctification. That's what this walk of following Jesus looks like, is we take off the old self, we put on the new self. The new self that starts with renewing your mind. Let's read Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." The reality of salvation is not just this past tense thing. It's not just like, hey, I was saved when I was 14. That's when I got baptized. The reality of salvation is, is three parts. It's you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That process of sanctification, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, that is the part where God is kind of saving us in, in, in real time. He involves us in the, in, the, in the process of us becoming more like Jesus. It's because he loves us. He wants us to be a part of this. Now, can we do it without his spirit? Absolutely not. But he involves us in this process. Do you know what this process is called? Discipleship. Discipleship. This is exactly what that, that word in Ephesians 4.20 
But this is not the way you learned Christ. That word learned is the same word that's used, translated as disciple, many times in the Bible. This is not the way you learned Christ. To follow Jesus, it's not like you just wake up one morning and you're following Jesus and you've got it all down. It's a process. It's a, it's a learning. There's an application that we have to grab hold of. We've got to take off the old self and put on the new self. God involves us in this process. And putting on the new self is first and foremost an issue of truth. This is why it says it's not the way you've learned Christ. This is why the word disciple can be translated as learned. We've got something to put on as Christians. We've got to embrace the truth of God, which will melt away the hardness, which will eventually change our reckless lives to be lives that have more self-control in them. John chapter 8, Jesus uh, says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, here's the secret. If you abide in my word, if, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word for disciple there is the same word used for learn in Ephesians 4.20. So if hardness of heart is described as this inability to be receptive to the word of God, abiding in the word of God is the exact opposite thing. It's when you embrace the word of God and it becomes good news to you. Following Christ is the abiding life. Romans 13.14 says this, but put on, there's that, there's that phrase, put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what's it look like to take off the old self? We've got to quit feeding the monster. Whatever it is in your thought life that your, your thoughts wander to. And that's kind of one of the things I want you guys to think about this week is see if you can recognize where your thoughts go to when no one's telling them where to go. If you're willing to begin to walk into that, I think God might reveal some things to you. And don't be afraid of where it takes you because the Holy Spirit has the power to change whatever you, whatever you realize about yourself. We've got to starve our flesh to, to abide in Christ. We've got to cut them off. We can't make any provision for the flesh because what we're doing is we're taking up the old stuff and we're putting it back on. We're saying, ah, Jesus, I don't, I don't really want to wear you today. I want to wear this instead. And we've got, we got to cut that stuff off because... Paul says, he's reminding them before this of where that leads to. But the Holy Spirit will, it will pursue, it will, it will prevail in our lives. But the question is, how treacherous will the journey be as the Holy Spirit is prevailing in your life? So we've got we to put off the, the old stuff. Ephesians 4.24 says this, We were created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what's that translate as? You were made for holiness. You were made to be holy. You were made to be holy. And that holiness, that holiness that we desire, it comes from wearing Christ. He is your covering. He is your provision. He is your acceptance. He is your desire. He is your identity. God has not left anything out in providing for you in Christ. He's giving you the whole shebang. He's giving you everything that you'll ever need. And we only find this in wearing Jesus. I want to, I want to put a quote up on the screen uh, as we kind of land this plane here and, and read this quote from uh, Jerry Bridges to you. It says this, The objective holiness that we have in Christ 
So that holiness that we're given, we're justified in Christ. And the subject of holiness produced by the Holy Spirit are both gifts of God's grace and appropriated or given to us by faith. However, the perfect holiness that we have in Christ is the answer to our dilemma of how we can appear daily before a perfect holy God, even when our best deeds are stained and polluted, as Isaiah 64 said. Our lack of understanding of the distinction between the holiness that we already have in Christ and the holiness we want to find in ourselves caused A.W. Pink, a theologian, to say this, we mistakenly hope to find in ourselves something that can only be found in Christ. What if we begin to look at what God has already given us, how he's already robed us in Christ? What if, that was, what if that was what was driving us forward to be more holy and to be more like Jesus? Because you and I will never find what our hearts desire while we're still wearing the old man. His spirit wants to take, take those old clothes off. We've got we to gotta take out the dirty laundry. When I was learning to play baseball, Maybe some of you play baseball too. My coach, what my coach and my parents and everybody, you know, Little League Baseball, the stands, are, it's like participatory, right? I mean, everybody's kind of in the game together. They would always say, when I got up to bat, I'd kind of get in and get ready to hit the ball. Ryan, keep your eye on the ball. This is kind of what it's like to put on Christ. In baseball, your hands, they follow your eyes. In Christ, our actions, our hearts, they follow our minds. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And we're renewed by putting these thoughts into our mind. This is why Paul says in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So a couple practical things as we, as we, uh, as we continue in worship. What's this walk out of darkness look like practically? Uh, we've got, the first thing is we've got to realize, we must realize that, that our issue is an issue of the heart. It's not just of our actions and our hands. It's not like, man, if I could just quit lying, I'm a perpetual liar. If I could just quit doing that. If I could just be honest on my expense reports. You know, if I could just stop looking at women that way. If I could just stop texting that guy. Or if I could just stop doing those things, then maybe my life would be better. Well, that's not the answer. That's a band-aid on the problem. The issue is one of our heart. It's a hardness of heart. We must realize that our simple actions are stemming from a hardness of heart. And that Jesus is the only thing that can melt away that hardness. We also must realize that spiritual formation, it requires us to use our minds to think on Christ. We must ask God to help us identify what's going on inside of us. Second thing is this, we must believe in the grace that's available to us through faith. So we've got we to believe that God has actually provided for us. He's actually give us, he gives us grace, that we have no part in working something up to provide that would, that would be enough to save us. It's God that provides, and it's through faith that we receive that. It melts away all the unbelief. Well, the third thing is this. We must repent and walk into the light through obedience, no matter what the cost is. Some of you are wrestling with sin right now, and if, if other people knew about it, or if you were to, to bring those things to light, uh, it would be a high cost to you. Maybe to your career, maybe to your marriage, maybe to your family. I don't know what it would be. It would be a high cost. Well, it's better to walk in the light than in the darkness. 
We've got to trust that God has us. And this is why he tells us to be exposed in his word over and over again. Walk in the light as he is in the light. So that's what it means to repent, to walk out, to turn out of that darkness and to walk toward the light. That's what repentance is. And the last thing is this. We've got to repeat A through C, those three things we just talked about, for the rest of our lives. Faith, obedience, repentance. That's the dance of our lives. That's what we continue to do over and over and over again. That's what it looks like for us to take off the old man and put on the new man. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, some heavy-hitting truth today uh, from your word, God. And we just want to take seriously what you take serious. We want to consider, we want to consider our sin, the, the darkness maybe that some of us are walking in, that all of us are walking in to some degree. And we want to just put, we want to put on the new man. Um, we know that this only happens through, through Jesus, uh, through the, the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives us to walk out the day-to-day life. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us do that. We pray that we would, we would enter into our thought life and think more about where our, how our thoughts are directing our lives. We pray that you'd help us to renew our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.